Welcome to Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawks. And in Series 1, we talked to legends like Gary Newman, Fatboy Slim, Goldie and Marianne Hobbs. You can go to Deezer.com for the full interviews or subscribe to Trailblazers via your usual podcast provider. So Trailblazers is all about celebrating the uh, very finest uh, pioneers and game changers and visionaries in electronic music. And uh, we were really pleased to get Paul Oakenfold as the... uh, uh, first guest in this new series and this was uh, this was done at a, a kind of an opportune time because just as we were doing the interview he was about and we couldn't talk about mm. it at the time but mm. we knew it was going to happen he mm. was just about to do the first official DJ set that's right at Stonehenge yes because of course there have been lots of illegal parties mm. there have been many DJs that have played there in the past but he was that was the first of actual official DJ set yeah well, it, I guess in this millennium anyway <laughs> um, at, at that uh, yeah. legendary site and what a what a, an incredible sunset night that was. We it, were there together. We were. We both went down. There's about 50 people there. And, and it was a shame that we sort of couldn't really talk about it in this episode because it was still very much under wraps and it hadn't been announced and all the rest of it. But uh, subsequently, yes, it got announced. And uh, that news travelled globally, didn't it? There was stuff on everywhere about that Stonehenge DJ set. And, yeah, it was a very memorable thing. Amazing visuals. And it's online, isn't it, if you want to have a little look at the, the DJ set there? Absolutely, yeah. Paul Oakenfold and Carl Cox back-to-back at Stonehenge just after we recorded this. An incredible celebration of possibly the world's first superstar DJ. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Paul Oakenfold Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play us some of the tunes that soundtracked their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a DJ and production legend, one of the original three that took dance music Music Overground in the UK, boss of the Perfecto brand, godfather of UK trance, soundtracker to Hollywood big guns, and probably the only man in the world that's seen as many armpits as Fatboy Slim. <laughs> <laughs> also, also, even most impressively, I've just, re- I've just, I've just, well, you know, you don't want to slag your crowd. Um, even more impressively, one of the only two men in dance music ever to have rocked a mullet and got away with it. <laughs> I want to bring back the mullet. <laughs> Paul Oakenfold, welcome to Trailblazers. And if you, you bring if you bring back mullets, then mullets are back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, first of all. And uh, on that mullet, my hair don't grow anymore. It's a, it's a weave. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I it's going to be an attached mullet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, can they, well, you can do that. You know, girls do that. Did you, you know? have a, a mullet, Eddie? I never. I, that's one, one haircut that I've never Rocked. I've, had some, fancy it, I've had some dubious. No, Village? definitely not. I've, oh, okay. I've, I've had some dubious hair. I've had, you okay. know, I've had dreadlocks. I've had plaits. Oh, I've had plaits, yeah. but I've never had. Mm. I've never had the mullet. Okay. Paul, has, Paul has got one on me. Uh, uh, on and a historical, there. historical thing. But well, if it, you think about it, it's a rare thing for people in, you know, for people in dance music to have a mullet. 
Yeah. Pretty rare. It's only, worked. It's only worked. Paul and Jacques Lacan, Stuart yeah. Price. Okay. You know, who, of course, Madonna is the... Uh, is the link is, there. Is the link between yeah. you. <laughs> Bring back the mallet.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, mate. That is it. Well, I'm going to let, uh, let Nick... We finish the interview now. Yeah. 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 Let's get our coat now. Get back, get back to the music. All right, Paul. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, man. It's so hey, brilliant to have you along here. So, look, you've had a truly illustrious career. You've done so much, uh, achieved so much. On the DJing front, we'll talk about production and running labels and all of that later, but on the DJing front, is there any one moment that stands out as the, the biggest highlight? It's a very interesting question because I, I actually get asked that a few times. Mm. It's really difficult to define one moment. Over the history of me DJing, I've always felt that electronic music doesn't just need to live in clubs. So whether it's the Great Wall of China or main stage at Glastonbury or, or Coachella or Mount Everest Base Camp, or even when we started our own club, Spectrum, when we really shaped where mm. electronic music was going in 88, the, the, these moments and supporting some of the biggest bands in the world on mm. stadium tours, it's really difficult to go, that's that one. the one. I don't know which one. No. Hard to say. It's hard, it really is. Something I was also thinking about with all of these amazing sort of moments, and particularly like, yeah, when you're getting into this thing of like Great Wall of China, Mount Everest, you start to run out, don't you, of amazing... No, there's a few. There's a few. Well, what's yeah. on the list then? There's a wish list. I'm approaching it in a different way now. So this is the first of a few that I want to do for charity. So, oh, and we're talking about the Mount Everest. The Mount Everest so, thing and everything. Yeah, right. So this, based on the question and where moving forward, there are some locations that I'd like to go to. Yeah. Have you ever played in Cuba out of interest? Yeah. You haven't mm, done that. The first one was for Radio 1 in 1999 when I was the resident for the Essential Mix. Right. And I've played in Cuba twice since and I go there in December of this year again. Right. I, I, I ask that because there's not that many untapped markets, but hardly any Western DJs have played yeah. there, you know. Well, the, Cuba's interesting. Havana, first of all. Mm. I mean, when we went with Radio 1, we smuggled turntables in, and you should have a listen to the, the essential mixes. That's quite well documented from that time. I will, yeah. But last time I was there, not last year, year before, we yeah. did a workshop oh. so, and performed with a Cuban band, and we charged a dollar yeah. to get in so we had like you know about six seven hundred kids and electronic music is starting to become like it is everywhere yeah. now globally there's pockets going on in, yes. in Havana with people making electronic music because as you know mm. it's very musical oh it's an amazing <clears throat> it's an amazing country but uh, yeah you know it just struck me when I was out there as as maybe that somewhere where there is you know, uh, a lot more to be done. But, you know, there'll be others, I'm sure. No, the, the, <laughs> it's not so much now for me, the country. It's why are you doing it and what's behind it? Mm. So with Base Camp Mount Everest, the idea was I've never hiked. I've never slept in a sleeping bag. I come from London. So first of all, can I do it? And I trained six months for it. Why are you doing it? Because we wanted to shed light on what had gone on with the earthquake there and raise money for children. Yep. Also, coming from London, I mm. wanted to shed light on the school that mm. I went to because they've cut all their music budget. Mm. So we, several lads set off to see if we could do this. So I became really fit, which was yeah. great. We raised 100000 for children. 
And it was one of the greatest experiences I, I've ever had. And through electronic music, where I am in my career, I can shed light on those moments. And more to the point, I'd like to. You know, yeah. as we touched on earlier, isn't it about time that we're all giving back for the next yes. generation and we're leaving a legacy? And, yeah. and I think in anything you do in life, generally you get to a moment where you go, I'd like to do that. You know, yeah. the electronic music has been great for all of us. Yes. And if you have an opportunity to do that, well, mm. then why not? You, you also get to a point where you're traveling the world all the time. You're playing in the same clubs, which is wonderful. But you're on this treadmill just mm. doing this. Mm. So it's a case of how can you make it different and how can you create a bit more impact rather than just... I played in yeah, Sao if Paulo. I was gonna, if I was Maybe gonna... it's like I played in Sao Paulo, but look, I was able to help. Exactly. Blah blah blah. Plus, yeah. tick off your bucket, your bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. but, no, can we just rewind to the bigger story for me in that in that incredible sentence, uh, extended sentence there? The bigger story for me was, and this is massive. You've never slept in a sleeping no, bag. No. <laughs> so growing up, <clears throat> what the hell? You've never went on a camping holiday. No. Or anything? You see, so growing up in South London as a working class guy, you don't go on. You you don't leave London. Then I lived in New York. Then Amsterdam. And no, I mean, I never really had the opportunity to go camping. Right, I'd probably go glamping there. Yeah, yeah, but of course, you don't. Of you don't go camping. So, so you were so growing up, you were nature deficit, as they yeah. as they said. There's this you, Japanese uh, thing called urban. forest bathing, yeah. which has been pr- they've, they've they've just this week put out um, the, the, these uh, scientific figures to show that you know that um, hanging around in a wooded area is incredibly good for you, yeah. really good for your mental do health. You hang around in wooded really areas around. much, Eddie? Do you? <laughs> not, not in a creepy way. No, no. no. <laughs> you sure about that, Eddie? We've heard rumours. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I love a forest bathe. You know, yeah. I love a forest bathe. But, um, but in all seriousness, that's amazing that you, that, you know, you, you never had that. No, yeah, and, and, growing and up. So was... when you when you say, so, let's rewind it back to where it all started. Then, so South, you're a, so you're a South so London boy. I was boy. born in I was born in Marlind. Yeah, moved to Highbury. And then I lived in South London. There's right. no wooded areas there. There may be a green park. Brockwell Park. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can't camp, camp in the Greenwell <laughs> Brockwell Park. Yeah, you can't and camp then, there. And then moved to New York and... There's nothing, you can't, you can't be in high Park with a tent. So I, I never really experienced that. So when the opportunity came, okay, you're going to go and do the outdoor thing, and it's fantastic, right? Mm. And as you mentioned, it was on the bucket list to go and, you know, really do it properly, go out there, and, and that's what we did. And mm. it was a, it was terrible experience. It was <laughs> minus 16. Oh I'm in way. a sleeping bag. I'm sleeping on the rocks. And, and we, sh- we documented this for a film. You'll see the struggle. Yeah. And the film comes out later this year. And, you know, it wasn't easy. I'm, I'll be totally honest. It was really difficult. I bet. But I really enjoyed it. And that, to answer your question again, Nick, yeah. this is what set me on this trail now. If I can challenge myself... Make money for children. Yep. Hence, that's why I did the UNICEF thing yeah, on the weekend. Right. Mm, mm. Have fun, be with my friends, have a laugh, and play some music en route. Then why not? What, yeah. could, what could be better? So, were you musical as a kid growing up yeah. in South London and Highbury? Did you play instruments and so, stuff? So, going back, my dad was in a skiffle band. Oh, really? What did he play? So it was in a guitar, the form of a rock and roll band, and skiffle is a a British form of rock music. Yeah. Every uh, Saturday evening, 
uh, get dressed up, wear the suit, you know. It was the one night that they could go out and my mum would go. So we grew up around music. Mm. I had piano lessons. My dad was teaching me guitar. We were listening five, six years of age. First music I'm ever hearing is Elvis and Beatles. Mm. I always wondered why I knew the lyrics to Beatles songs many years later. And mm. it wasn't until my mum said, well, because we were always playing the Beatles and Elvis. Mm. So it was just there, similar to what your producer said with his children growing up there yeah. in this environment. It's there. So I grew up in it and had a fond memory of music before my dad passed. And, and we always discussed music. It was just part of your DNA. And I suppose that's what's kind of led me to, to here. And was there a tune back then, I presume, either an Elvis or a Beatles tune that, that provided you with your first kind of musical yeah. memory? Yeah, it was a Beatles tune called She Loves You. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Yeah. Trailblazers. So that was a big moment uh, for me because my mum was more Beatles. My father was big Elvis fan. Yeah. And he passed, and the year he passed, I got asked to do a remix for the Elvis Presley project. Of course. Which I did rubbernecking. Yeah. And I said to him, if I can put my father's name on a sleeve dedicated to my dad, I'd do it. Mm. And they agreed. Mm. And it was just, it kind of wrapped that whole moment up of... You know, growing up with my dad, him passing, me doing that tribute and the, and the Elvis estate allowing me to put his name on the sleeve. And it was a real wonderful moment for, for me personally. So, Paul, what's one of your tunes? Like, I guess the next phase was when you started owning your own music, you yeah. know, then. When did you start kind of buying seven-inch singles like we all did, you know? what like, And what was the stuff that was turning you on, like, you know, at that, at that time? Well... At this time, when I started to come into my own, I was influenced by radio, I think, like a lot of us. And, mm. and so I would listen to radio, listen to the, the countdown, as, uh, uh, as they call it. Which um, radio station? Radio 1. Radio it's 1. Always one, Radio yeah. 1. Not yeah. Radio Luxembourg or Carolina, no. the Pirates. For you. I, w I wasn't even really aware of Luxembourg. Mm. You know, you're living in London, you, you're, yeah. it's Radio 1. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's all the time. Mm. Um, and you listen to the charts because you love music. And you'd be influenced by various different songs. T-Rex getting on uh, was was always the song for me because of the attitude, because of the way he looked. And you watch Top of the Pops also. Yeah. Uh, you come through those moments of British, I suppose, pop rock band, Shawaddy Waddy, Sweet, Bay mm. City Rollers. We're talking that. So you, you were a glam rock kid then? Yeah, you, you know, I, I and and one of, one of your, your heroes, Gary Newman with Cars and... Yeah, and the, the, this whole moment of of your pocket money going to the post office, <laughs> buying the seven inch single <laughs> in yeah. a post office. Oh yeah, yeah. I bought albums in the freezer center. In like yeah. in what became so, Iceland, so you, you know? Yeah, yeah you you'd, and 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 that moment of playing them over and over again, and then and that yeah. kind of led me to wanting to be in a band. So mm. the, the strange thing was, and I've explained this before three local friends 
And let's do a band. And then my mum was like, right, what are you going to do when you're 16 and you leave leaving school? Well, we're in a band. <clears throat> and that was a really important moment in my life because my mother said, no, you're not. She said, you're going to get a proper job. And that was amazing advice because at 16, you think you know it all. Mm. You think, right, this is what I'm going to do. This yeah. is who I am. Um, she put a foot down and she said, no, you're going to get a career. You're going to study. Mm. You're going to understand all the things that uh, you need to at that age. Timekeeping, respect, honour, you know, mm. the, these mm. kind of things that your father instills in you, but you now put in practice. If you're in a band at 16, you just end up doing what you you do and late nights and fall into maybe the wrong things. So I, my grandmother was a chef. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do? You know, what do you do? I wasn't very good at school. I was mm. found out after I was dyslexic. Mm. So I thought, I'm going to become a chef. So I worked incredibly hard for four years uh, to become a fully qualified French cuisine chef. And what I mean by that, I would do split shifts, which you start at 10 in the morning, you finish at 3, you get 3 till 5 off, then you go back at 5 and you work till 11. Then you go home, you do the same yeah. for 5 days, and then one. Then I would go to college uh, at Westminster Tech in Victoria doing a day release, and this was for 4 years to pass my exams. It was a really tough time, but it shaped who I am and, and the yeah. work ethic. Yeah, it must have given you a hard work ethic because no, nobody works hard, hard, well, hardly anyone works harder than a chef. I mean, that's, I exactly know, so right. many chef you mates. don't realise that. that they, I mean, the hats off, I mean, they work so hard. It's really long hours. Yeah, yeah, you have no, you know, like <clears> anyone life. who's married to a chef is a widow before, you know, mm. like you're just a chef mm. widow, aren't you? Yeah. Like, you know, and there'll be some listening to this nodding their head going, mm. yes, I, yeah. Mm. Uh, man, they re they work so hard. So, wow, so you were, you were going to be a chef. So I was fully qualified. I was working for a company called J Lions that had various different restaurants through uh, London. They also did outdoor catering, so they catered for the Wimbledon tennis event, the Grand Prix um, so it was it was enjoyable, but long hours. But then I reached that moment where I'd passed, became a fully qualified chef and had that moment with my mum. And I said, listen, I've done it now. If I don't go and try music, I will regret this for the rest of my life. And I spoke to her about it. And, and she said, look, you, you, you can always fall back now. You're fully qualified. You can go and get a job in any kitchen in, in Britain. In the world, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and so I'm like, all right, I'm going to go into music, my first and love, true passion, uh, and figure it all out. And, and was there a tune back then that uh, you can pinpoint as being inspirational to you? In the, a tune that sort of said, oh, you know what? I could do this. I want to do this. I'm inspired well, to that, do this. That, that tune was T-Rex, Get It On. They just had a lot of attitude and that, that was that moment uh, before I really got into, I, so, I suppose, jazz funk was the first. Once I started to ease into, well, it wasn't electronic music, it was, li it was live instruments mm, and yeah. that's where I, I come from the live background. So, so should, let's, let's should we listen to T-Rex, get it on and then, yeah. and then start to delve into the, uh, the discovery of yeah, absolutely. music and dance music. Yeah. 20s Oakenfold. Yeah, let's all right, that. let's do that. Trailblazers, Paul Oakenfold.
T-Rex, get it on. I always think if only been driving a modern Mini rather than a, an old Mini, he would be alive. Yeah. Uh, what, a, what a gutter. An absolute hero to so many people. Um, we're with Paul Oakenfold and we're soundtracking his life. So you're a rocker. You were well, a rocker. I, when I, did you? When did you start? I, to... I still am a rocker. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I, I I love rock music. Grew up, as I explained, with my father being involved in it. it was the first form of music with the Beatles and Elvis that I heard. Um, so that's where my fundamentally my roots are. I mean, I, I I've got to be honest. I'm I like a lot of kinds of music. I I'm not. I, my path led me to electronic music. Electronic music showed me the world. But my heart and soul is in music. Yeah. It's not a genre. Yeah, 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 of course. And that reflects young people today. You know, like people used to be rockers and ravers and yeah. never the twain shall and, meet. And, and it's wonderful that, that the, the gateways are all open now. Yeah, and, and Eddie, if I can just say something on that, because I don't live in this country and haven't for many years, this is what's wonderful about Britain, is we grow up listening to all kinds of music. And people mm. like yourself, mm. we've... we've Virgin Radio, Radio 2, blah, blah, blah. There's so many stations here. And the, the cross-section of music you hear, you don't hear in America. Mm. That's my point. Mm. You tune into Power 106, it's only hip-hop. Yeah. Oh, yeah K-rock, only rock. Pop, yeah. pop, top, where pop music is at the moment, I personally, I think it's dreadful. It's, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a generic sound that they all do, and that lives oh, on the 808 thing, yeah. But you, there's no station that you can go to like there are here mm. where yeah. you can hear. And I think that influences all as we're all growing up. Yeah. And that gives us, you know, I mean, look, we're a tiny island with some of the greatest ever bands, individual singers. I mean, arguably Ed Sheeran and Adele are the two biggest acts in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're from the shores of the United Kingdom. Yeah, sure. this tiny little keep, island, yeah. And they keep coming. And I think radio plays a big influence on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, preach, 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 mate. Uh, so, um, so you've talked about you. You, you, you are a rocker. You, you're kind of long-haired on the inside, you know. Um, but when did you start engaging with, um, I'm going to say dance music, but of course dance music in the way that we know it now didn't exist then. You know, disco existed, exactly. but you didn't really, you weren't really, you weren't a disco head and you weren't yeah, a, no, a soul I, boy really, were yeah, you? So what, no, what, what, what were you? What, what was your entry point into the world of the discotheque, if you like? I kind of was. What happened was now I'm like, you know, I'm working for a, a record, I'm working for Rush Release, which is an independent promotion company. Mm. So uh, you've done the chef training. So I did the thing. chef thing. You've left school. You've done the chef thing. I go to New and, York. Ah, well, let, uh -huh. well, well, in that case, then I uh, go on a holiday and I don't return for two right, years. And right, right. If I can say it, that, you, it, well, it, well, anyway, yeah, yeah. I think the slate is clean. Now. Oh, yeah. so, I'm an English I'm an English alien in New York. Did you start? Were you were you investigating dance music culture in the UK before your American trip? Yes. You were. So so when so what sort of clubs did you so, go to? Uh, you know when you yeah, were what the a, DJs a, that you were seeing? Yeah, teenager. Yeah. Good Good question. So what happens is I I want to get back into music. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, and and then I moved to South London and I started to look at Chris Hill, yeah. Robbie Vincent, right. Colin Hudd, yep. uh, George Powell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This was that period. Got it. Um, so I started to go, these were trips, you know, these all these weren't just clubs you go to. Yeah. And what I mean by trips, you'd you go to an all dayer. Yeah. 
right, down in Yarmouth or on mm-hmm. a coach and mm-hmm. Steve Walsh, mm-hmm. the famous Steve Walsh who, who passed away in Ibiza, um, uh, Paul Trouble Anderson at 100 yeah. Club. I Trouble Anderson. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. I, 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 was, I was on the dance floor, you know, all out of time, shuffling around <laughs> with the feet, you know, trying to trying to get the soul boy moves down. And, when and you... the mallet was coming. Right. The mallet was starting was to grow. It was coming. So, so when you were going to these all-dayers and checking all these DJs out, had you DJed at no. that point? Right. You were just a dancer and you were a music fan. I, Yes, oh. and I I was like, oh my god, this is great. So I was going to Groove Records, I was going Bluebird Records. Yeah, I was going, and I, and you'd stand there, and then you'd you know you, you'd put your hand in the air when you was buying records, and I still was working. I still had to be working as doing a, the chef, as thing, doing yeah. the chef to buy the records yes. because I was like, well, what, what, I've got to get a job in a record company. I wrote every record company, and everyone said no. Yeah. As they as they do to be expected, right, yeah. Right? And then, all right. So I I had to keep working, knowing that I was going to make the move sooner or later. Hence, that's where all the music coming. Chris Hill was the man. Yeah, uh, he was playing all those tunes. McFadden and Whitehead ain't no stopless yeah. now. Yeah, that was yeah, the yeah. theme of that moment. Uh huh. Um, and then this particular DJ went to New York. And he came back, and he was the first British DJ to ever mix, and it was Froggy. Yes, it was the. Fr- and ref- I was like, "Oh my god, this guy is merging two records together and telling a story." So that was like mind blowing, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 and none of the other DJs could do it, and I'm like, "I've got to go to New York. I've got to go." I, you know, it, it was like the light bulb going off. It was that moment that I thought. I've got to go that direction. Let, let's hear a tune from the Froggy era, and and uh, and then as soon as we've checked that out, then let's hear about New York. So, can you pick well, us a, yeah, a, a record? I, I think from- that I think the definitive tune has to be McFadden and White. It ain't no stopping us now because that was the big moment where there was a community led by Chris Hill, the likes of the names I mm. I mentioned earlier, mm, mm, mm. and it just summed up that period of time. Wicked. Let's hear it. Trailblazers. So McFadden and Whitehead ain't no stopping us now, evoking some memories there for you of all dayers and Chris Hill and um, and Froggy, who who deserves more credit really and more yep. profile than he gets. I'm pleased that he's he's cropped up in this conversation because I myself, my best mate, saw Froggy in the mix. Um, Amazingly, he uh, used to kind of support some of the daytime Radio 1 DJs. Um, and so there was like um, Radio 1 player did a thing down in Bristol uh, and we heard Froggy in the mix and and, uh, and it was great. But then it became a more very traditional Radio 1 kind of night out type thing. So managed to see him once. And uh, yeah, he's uh, certainly a legend in and, and played a very important role in, in bringing mixing culture into the UK. So great that you mentioned him. But this Sounds exciting now. So now you're you're about you're, you're what eighteen years old, maybe nineteen, I guess, and you're you're heading <laughs> I can't off. Remember. And you're heading. Off, well, you're a, you're a te- you're still in your teens, and you decide you're going to head off to New York, right? So this sounds like quite an adventure. So 
my my dear friend um, Ian, mm. he has family there, mm. <clears throat> so we go we go on a two week holiday that turns into a little bit longer. Yep, um, and was sleeping on the floor at his cousin's house yep. on 181st Street on the west side, okay. taking a number one train. Yeah, and emerged um, myself into. Uh, the, the 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 kind of growth of hip hop, Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, Curtis Blow, all that music was being played on the radio. Yeah, Paradise Garage, Larry Levan, yeah, Funhouse, Jelly Bean, John Jelly Bean Benitez. These were the big influences on me. So, uh, and were you were you I managing? Was a courier. Were you getting into the? Were you go? <coughs> did you go to Paradise Garage yeah. and and all so, that? Yeah. So I would listen to. WBLS, yeah. Frankie Crocker. Um, I was making ends meet. I was a courier. I was delivering packages. Wh- which year was this? this the, yeah, this this has got to be um, early eighties. Early eighties. It's got to right. be okay. Um, so, so you then I came back and was working with Champion. Yeah. Then we went on to do Ibiza and yeah. Spectrum. And, so this is early eighties. Uh, so, so coming out of the chef, looking. For a place in life, being influenced by what Froggy and them guys were yeah. doing, and now trying to establish a path. Because yes. when I came back from New York, I started with Rush Release. So, so let's let's talk about New York. So, did you? Yeah, what were your um, impressions as a young, as a teenage kid from South London, walking into the Paradise Garage for the so, first time, for example? I was doing two paths really in New York: hip hop yep. with Red Alert, Chuck Chillout and Red Alert, who yeah. I later met in New York and, and befriended. Yeah. Um, and that's how I went on that hip-hop path, uh, which we'll touch on in a minute. Yeah. Um, and then being fascinated by nightclubs and going and and, um, and meeting and hanging out um, with Larry Levan um, um, and John Jellybean Benitez. And the way you got into these people was the British flag. You know, you, you're from England. Uh, we had false ID made. Uh, so I was NME because um, you need identification to get in the place. So I wrote for NME, which obviously I didn't. It was a blag. Ian <laughs> wrote for Melody Maker. And that's how we would get into all the clubs free because we had no money. Right. And, and I've got to say, there's an amazing coincidence between you and I here, which I, I didn't realise until this moment, because in the summer of 1987, I went to work in uh, New York, got myself a job as a cinema usher. So that's almost my equivalent of you doing the couriering thing. Um, and and I thought, how can I get involved in in the music industry? And I and I came up with this idea. I know what I'll do. I'll call up the head of WBLS and say, can I interview you? I'm writing a there an article go. for a for a magazine. Yeah. But it was just like you. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we that's, were that's... both using the same yeah blag. Same blag. In the same, in the same city. <laughs> yeah. And there was really no the amazing. Same time. Well, well, just a few years, me yeah, a few years yeah, later. Yeah, a little bit later. Yeah. yeah. I I just made that up. I I presume you made it up yourself. Yeah. I, I say you got in everywhere free. I say you got to meet everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and at this point, you still hadn't DJed, right? Or had no. you? You so you 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 so had I, sort of I, thought, oh, I I fancy doing this. No, I'd bought with my savings. I'd bought a console, but there's no very speed. This yeah. is one of those it's like a Citronic thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I would 
buy so that when we go back to Groove Records and Chris Hill, I was buying those records. I'd be in my bedroom playing them. My mum would literally have the broom banging yes, the ceiling, yes. going, turn the music down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that moment. But no, I wasn't a DJ. I, when I came back was when I started. Mm. And Trevor Fung, credit where credit's due, Trevor got me into that but I'm in New York still at yeah. the moment and I'm being inspired because I can get in everywhere me yeah and amazing and and so so tell <clears> us <throat> about the hip-hop side then as well you you were you going to hip-hop clubs so I, I, I was there was something in the, in the coming out of the late 70s which I wasn't in New York mm. but going into the early 80s it was New York was just alive with hip hop break dancers, yeah. you know, Rocksteady Crew, uh, yeah. Whiz Kid, Chuck Chill Out, uh, Red Alert. This was Grandmaster Flash, the whole yeah. yeah, fashion. It was New York was alive, and it wow. just so inspired me. That trip. That's why I stayed. Yes, I'm what like, a, what, what am I going home there. for? I've got to find who I am as a person. And I've got to just roll with it. Yes. And so that's why I was sleeping on the floor. Yep. That's why I was a, co- a courier, because yep. you could be legal and make money yep. as a courier. Yep. And so I'd get paid cash. I blagged my way in the record company's profile records, Corey Robbins. Yeah. Um, and you you touched on it, Salsa Orchestra, these kind of labels. Mm. Um, the, mm. it, it, was, it, was, it led me into the hip-hop world. So when I came home, I had these contacts. And then I started to manage Mastermind, which yes. was a pool of DJs, four DJs all playing back to back from Holston. Yeah, a sound uh, system, really. A sound system. Mm. Uh, then it was the London All Star Breakers, which was like the rock steady. So mm. I was managing both these, and yeah. I had no experience or, or of management, but I had all the contacts. And then I was playing on with Lyndon T and Gordon Mack. I was on the pirate radio station for Kiss and I was playing, I had all the promos because I went to all the record companies and I was saying, look, I'm a DJ, blah, 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 blagging it. It's the uh-huh. old blag. Yeah. So uh-huh. I've got all these records, I've collecting them and then when I come home, I have all these contacts and that's how I started to, that's how I got into the hip hop world. Yeah. And yeah. then I was, we were on Blue Peter the London All-Star Breakers entered the Swatch Watch World Break Dance Competition. They finished third. We came back to London. We were on the Blue Peter show, and they were showing. It was a fad break dance. Yeah, 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 did you of course. Get this, I got these, a badge. Did you get these guys? <laughs> well done. Blue Peter yeah, badge. That's, that's one that thing that neither of me already have. On. Yeah. Well, we have some things in common we don't have Blue Peter. <laughs> so did you get them on Blue Peter? Yeah. Amazing. So, what, so, what, well, no, what no, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, no, I didn't. Oh. They rung us up. There was a movie called Flashdance. There yes. was a moment in the movie where the Rocksteady crew were there and breakdancing went global. Yeah. Yes. We, they reached out to us, meaning to me, the London All-Star Breakers. They flew us to New York. We were third in the competition, went representing Britain. When we come back... Blue Peter reached out. Amazing. And that's how it happened. So you've got an, an amazing head start in terms of sort of rap culture compared to lots of people your yeah. age and what have you, because you've, you've now developed this network of contacts and everything. And now how did you use – there's two things that we need to find out. One is how you turned this into your first music industry job.
job. And still we've got to find out when was the first time that you actually set, stood behind a pair of decks right. in a club. Decks ain't coming. Decks ain't coming yet. He's All still right. blagging. Oh, still mate, still okay. blagging. So, so, so first industry job comes so first, first then, does so it? So, yeah, so the decks ain't... The, the, so I come back um, from New York... And I I work, I'm looking for that job, and Rush Release, an independent promotion, give me that job. They yeah. give me the paycheck. Yeah. The managing of these other things and DJing mm. on Kiss FM, mm. there's no money in that. Right. There really ain't no money in it, right? right? So Rush Release, I'm promoting records, uh, as you know how Rush yeah. works. Yeah. So a record company, just for your listener, the record company will hire an independent promotion company called Rush Release. Give them 250 copies of a new Culture Club record or yeah. the new whatever record. And my job is to take the record, first of all, mail it to the DJs, but also follow up, go to the clubs. And that's how I merge myself in a, into British club culture at that time, Yeah. which was a cross-section of gay, white, straight, black clubs. Yeah. You know, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and then... I was getting sent all these records from America, so I was going and taking them to Tim Westwood. At the time he was doing hip-hop, I was playing hip-hop, and it kind of just started to flourish and build to the point where I was running Profile Records in the UK. I was head of A&R for Profile, and I was hired by Sony to run, or Columbia at the time, to run Def Jam. Mm. So I had these two, they were paying me as a, as a, as a consultant, let's mm. put it that way, because mm. I still had a proper job. And, re, and respect to Rush Release, they allowed me to do it because they, they realised that I was bringing in money to the company, not only working for them, but bringing in contacts. Sure, that's um, great. So you were running Def Jam in the UK at that time? I was a consultant for Def Jam. I was running Profile right. Records. Profile was run DMC. Def Jam at the time was Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Public Enemy had just yeah. come. Rick um, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons had done a deal with Columbia Worldwide to distribute their label. So when Rob Stringer, mm, yeah, look how Rob. well Rob Stringer's done. Yeah. Uh, um, they, so when the Columbia UK, they didn't understand this music. So then... Russell Simmons and Rick said, you should hire this guy because he's already doing this for Corey Robbins. And Run DMC's brother, Run, is, yeah. is Russell's brother. Right. So there was a connection. You know, I had that experience and knowledge and knew what was going on with hip-hop. So I would take these records and these acts around the UK to kind of dance hip-hop clubs. Mm. And remember, there was a lot of clubs at that time that weren't playing just one sound. Oh, that was one of the great things about Ian this. Ian Dewhurst's this club. Yeah. Remember Ian? Uh, he's still around. Um, he, and he, yes. he did the Lyceum club, and we took Run DMC. Mm. I took Run DMC to the Lyceum. Mm. LL Cool J to the Embassy Club, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy on a tour. Yeah, I mean, I was God. really merged in that scene was, at that time. Yeah. Was the, the LL Cool J at Rock the Embassy... That was, was that was the official launch party, exactly. right? And was you there? I blagged my way in. <laughs> yeah, I blagged my way in. I was still we at university. Like, we didn't even meet then. No, we didn't. We didn't know each other. I was at university then, and yes, I, I completely blagged my way in. And yeah. uh, I remember getting uh, the Def Jam hoodie, the black hoodie, black in like hoodie. The, goodie, the goodie bag. Just on that note, and coincidentally, where Nick met me today, it was at the, uh, the Sanctum Soho Hotel, 
Well, the, the, the guy who put that show on, Mark Fuller, he was the manager of the embassy. And we spoke about this, this, this the actual moment right. only yesterday. Right. We were talking about this, this party because it was something really different. The embassy was a, is a high-end club, yes. or was. Yes. It wasn't a club where you'd have a hip-hop no. event. No, it was yeah, unusual. I, did, I did a goth night there. Did oh, you? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's also very unusual. The only yes. goth night at the Embassy <laughs> Club. You ruined it. Oh, <laughs> mate. So, 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 yeah. So that was that's interesting because we're finding a few parallels between you and me, sure. which we didn't necessarily know about, which is quite interesting. So you, you've got all of that sort of stuff happening. Where does Champion Records fit into the? So that picture? comes after Rush release. So then what right. happens is uh, Mel Medalli, who's one of the uh, the unsung heroes of of electronic music. I mean, mm. Robin S. Show me love. Yeah. I mean, Cham. We were we were a small independent label in Holston that competed uh, with the 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 major record companies who would have these offsprings of dance labels. FFRR yeah. was arguably our biggest competition, mm. and we would we couldn't compete in every way possible. But you were running that out of just a, a house in Holston. So we were in a house in Holston. I was that this time living in Carshorton. I first flat I'd got on my own yep you'd have to get a train a bus and a tube to get home so my so-called office was in a bedroom upstairs in a two-up house mm. so I would be on the floor packing the records sending them out doing what you do and I had a pull out sofa so I used to literally sleep in the office because it just made more sense rather than trying to get home so probably three days in a week I'd sleep on a pull-out sofa in the office and used to love it. Absolutely. We've all, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there, right? You, this, but this is what I go back to the, with a work ethic. Yeah, yeah. You, really. you can't expect nothing for free. If you want to become the best at anything you do, you have to put the work in. So it sounds like you were throwing as much energy into into this as you did into your training to be a chef. And then you, so then you started signing some hits, records, yeah. didn't you? We were signing uh, a few things. I mean, so the first thing I major first record I signed was Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. Yeah, right. And then I listened to it and thought, because uh, of my music background, I thought, the hook's not right. The, so we went into the studio, we got the parts, we went in the studio and I remixed it. Mm. And I put that sample... If you listen to the original, you listen to our version, meaning Champion Records version. Yeah. They're two different versions. Okay. There's an extra hook in there. So I put the... That's kind of the only hook that the, I that, that's remember. That's the only that everybody and remembers. There so you I, go. You start, you so I rearranged okay. the structure of the record. To make sure that it had make, a decent Because hook. rap's free flow. That period was not structured yes. in, in a traditional music way. So that, that helped it to become the, the hit record that so it was. So it became a massive... Top five Great. pop hit. That was a big moment for you, though. And that was my it. first remix that I'd done. Yeah. And then and it was all downhill from then on. <laughs> and you, and you, and you, and you, so you'd signed it, you'd remixed it in your top five. So that's, yeah. that's amazing. And then Will comes over, then they come over. Yeah. I'm running them around clubs. Um, right. Will Smith. And Will Smith mm. and, Je and Jeff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we then we start to go for it. Then then me and Mel go down and meet them. We're meeting up with uh, all different labels and 
we 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 start to indulge into the uh, Chicago house tracks. So which, and DJ which, International. Which sort of records were you were you signing then? So then we were signing Jack the Groove, Ray, Ray. Yeah, yeah. We were signing uh, a, a bunch of the DJ. Break International. for Love, maybe Break for that love. era. Yeah. Uh, sign sign Break for Love and. Uh, and then because I knew the hip hop stuff, I was I was working with Salt and Pepper, yes. uh, which wasn't on uh, Champion, but was on. But I helped inst- instigate that for mm. FFRR and yep. Pete uh, with Push It, yep, because I knew all the. And and the funny thing was again was the same with Mel. Mel realised even though I was being paid by him, FFRR would hire me because I knew all the guys in the Chicago Hot Mix Five. Yep. Uh, Farley Jack Master Funk Daryl Pandy so yeah. when FFR were releasing that stuff because they could pay more money than Champion could so I yep. would find it yep. they would beat us to it but then, Champ- then FFR would hire me independently to run all these guys around the clubs yes. and Mel would go with it he would yeah. be like alright okay. yeah it's okay because he realised that I had the connections and could bring the records in but we were always trying to sign them first but then the then they they mean in the the other rental companies realise that they could go to majors yeah and get more money and when you say FFRR you mean Pete Tong at this time don't you yeah because um, so it was, it was Pete was Pete's first of all was a dear friend but was major competition of because course because I had to beat him always I had to beat him still to this day I have to beat majors <laughs> to the punch yeah. because we don't have we don't have the the money so was it Pete that called you then? yeah. So Pete would call me and say, and this happened a few times with the Balearic beat when we came back. He released, he was the first one to release me as an artist yeah. on his label. Right. FFRR would, would hire me to go and promote, whether it was Salt and Pepper, whether it was Farley Jack Master Funk, Steve Silk Hurley. Oh, those that great was, records. You know, all these great records from these. Yeah. Yeah. I, was the prom- I was promoting them in right. the clubs. I was taking them out. And so, you still hadn't DJed at this point? I wouldn't say I was a DJ. I was starting to play. I hadn't played outside of my bedroom. Yeah. Right. That that changed in with Trevor Fung. That was kind of, I was so immersed in doing all that. Yeah. And then that kind of fell away. I started to think, well, I should be doing this for myself because I ain't making much money out of it and I'm giving everyone else hits. Yeah. Why shouldn't I do this for myself? I can remix I understand the studio, I can play instruments, but I'm not getting paid. You yeah. know, I'm giving hits to the record company and I'm doing promotion, but they're all getting paid and I just get a nominal fee to run people around. So I started to look at, well, what do, well now where do I want to go? And that was when the whole DJ, and Trevor Fung, was a DJ at a bar called Rumours in Covent Garden. One night... He was sick, and he said, "And remember, I was just a bedroom DJ collector." Yeah, no. And he said, "No pitch control." <laughs> no, no pitch control. So he said, "Why don't you step in?" And I, I loved it. That was the moment where I was like, "Okay, I can, I can be, a, I okay. can do this." And you took your records. So I carried my record box up on the train. And rumours ended at 11, and I remember I had to rush to Victoria because I had to get the night, the last train home, mm. you know. And and these things stick in your mind. Yeah. So that and, was okay. And you started was, pi- and so you started pitching those records. You so, started pitching uh, records on that night, and of course, I guess your musician's head yeah. told you, "Oh, you know, this is key, this is like you know, there's a key clash here. I can't mix this together, exactly. you know, and all that." So, so yeah. I guess you probably took to it like a duck to water. Yeah, 
and it was live drums and you're figuring it out. Yeah. And that was really the birth of DJing. But, Amazing. But it wasn't really until I came back from, from Ibiza that I really, you know, I, I, I had no plans to be a DJ. My plans, maybe Nick, similar to yours, was the record company. Mm. The A&R, I always wanted to sign the next U2. Mm, right. And that's something I've never achieved, but that was my goal, or that was the dream, was to do that. Mm. The DJing just kept overtaking and overtaking and overtaking, and then I one day thought, well, maybe my destiny is to be the DJ. And once I let it go and went, all right, I'm just going to go with this, everything opened up yeah. from remixing to touring with them playing with you know opening yeah. for Lenny Crows playing the stadiums and I just went with it because I would always say no 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 I've got to sign this <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could never find him, yeah. you know, and I was never in there. And I had this conversation with Alan McGee when he found, I was like, how did you find Oasis? He goes, it just happened. He was just in that place. He, he went up to see the main yeah. act. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and, and we, we talked about this with Daniel Miller here on, on, on this show. And he, it was the same thing with him with signing Depeche Mode. Very yeah. similar to Alan McGee, Daniel Miller. He hadn't gone to see Depeche Mode. He stumbled across him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, well. And, I, and I kind of realised that, that how can you force it? You can't force something. I, I'd love to find them, but you can't force it. You, I was in, you're just, you're in the wrong places. It just doesn't happen. And then you realise, well, you know, what, what is what is my destiny? Where am I going to go? And I, I learned all this early on. Yeah. Some people never, and by the way, I'm very lucky because some people never find their destiny. Yeah. Some people go through life never knowing their true value in what they want to yeah. do in their life. And, yeah. and if you can do something that you just love doing, the money comes, and it did. It did. Yeah. For me, it did. I just I was doing it and earning nothing, sleeping mm. on the floor, mm. working well, out many, yeah. and many, 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 many hours yes. You just because you love it. Yeah. And then it starts to find its feet, it blossoms, yeah. you find your direction, and then life changes. Yeah, yeah. And, and what you're saying there as well, sometimes life just presents opportunities and you sometimes just need to go for it and embrace it. And like you were saying, it wasn't the plan particularly for you to become, I mean, you know, you, you turn into the number one DJ in the world, wasn't your goal, but you just, things start to present yeah. themselves and, and you and you embrace them, which is uh, yeah. which is amazing. Or, or, or turn them down like you did with Aphex Twin. Nick. Yeah, in my case, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well... You can't... He can't argue. We've had this before. You can't... You know, the, the, the gods of, of A&R wouldn't let the same person sign the two greatest producers of electronic music with the greatest respect in the UK. Aphex Twin and Prodigy. You just can't have them can't signed have by both. the same person. Yeah, exactly. One of the two. Uh, <laughs> one's all right. Good. Well, uh, how about a little bit of music of some dis- description now? Yeah, what, what, is, what, is, the tune that, what, is, what is the tune that soundtracks this kind of moment? So here's my mix of... Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Girls ain't nothing but trouble. Let's do that. Trailblazers. Paul Oakenfold. Nevertheless, don't mean to bust your bubble. But girls of the world ain't nothing but trouble. So next time a girl gives you the play, just remember my rhymes and get the hell away. I was in 
in a bar one Friday night. Chilling out and watching the Sugar Ray fight. I'm Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So Jazzy Jeff plus the hook that we all remember that we now know was put there by Paul <laughs> Oakenfold. Um, I, that is, this is what I love about Trailblazers. It's those little, it's those little stories that now we'll never hear that record the same way again. So um, your life, Paul, was never really the same way again after you went to Ibiza. I mean, it's a legendary story that you must have told a gajillion times. But yeah. this is your this is your life story right here. This is a, this is the most important time that you've ever told it, Paul. <laughs> so let's <laughs> let's hear it. it anyway. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it again because you know uh, we, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. So so why did you go to Ibiza? To well, I I actually went there before 1988. When I was working with Rush Release, Rush Release signed an act called Divine, and I Divine was pl- performing at the Ku Club. So I went with Divine in in the in the capacity of looking after the artists, as you know, Nick, how, yeah. how it works. So sure. so, but I I hadn't experienced Ibiza the way we all know it until this was eighty seven. So nineteen eighty seven. Trevor Fung and Ian St. Paul, which are two of my best friends, were working on the island. One of them, Trevor's playing in a bar, Ian's doing what he's doing, and my birthday comes up and I want to, like everyone, you want to spend it with your friends. I'm heading to Ibiza. Johnny Walker was working at um, Polygram, Polydor Records. Yeah. And we were friends. Nicky Holloway was running Special Branch, which was London and Milk Bar, London's biggest clubs. Danny, I didn't know. Danny Ramplin wasn't a DJ. I didn't know him. He was Nicky's uh, best friend. So I'm like, listen, I'm going to Ibiza for my holiday, uh, for my birthday. And then those guys came. So now we're there. And we uh, we bump in or we come and see Ian and Trevor and they tell us about, you know, what the experiences of kind of what's going on. Um, <laughs> right. Can we talk, can we, right. We can we talk we, about uh, Yeah, no, we're, we're not on the radio, so Paul. Right. We, can, yeah. we so, don't have to pull uh, any punches. Right. We can talk okay. about whatever you like. So, so uh, what had happened was there was a big influx of drugs, ecstasy, and that was the change from 86 when I went there to 87. When I went there with Divine, maybe it was there, but I didn't know it. But in 87, I knew it. And I'd never done drugs. And I was really concerned, you know, that to suddenly go there and see my friends like crazy. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, and it was one of those moments where you're like, I can't, you know, no, no, no. For all four of us, actually, because it was a real eye-opener. And then, of course... It changed, and you know, say it, say it. He's going dewy-eyed with the memory. Yeah, yeah, it, it changed, and you you saw some kind of light. Um, let me put it that way, and and yeah, then you you hear music in a different way. We went and heard this DJ playing in Amnesia called Alfredo. It just changed, really opened my mind in a different way to music. And the holiday was a wonderful holiday. It was a real moment in in my life. And and like many people, you come back from holiday and you don't want it to end. And and it never ended. I'm, I'm still on holiday. <laughs> 
dear. It was, it was we later. came, so I came back end of August. Ian comes back end of September. Me and Ian, I'm already DJing at a club in South London called Ziggy's, playing hip hop and, and house music. And then we put on the first uh, Balearic party. And then it just exploded. So in the end of September, all the workers who who understood this scene in Ibiza all came back. They had nowhere to go. Ian knew all the workers, and I had the music. So we came together, and we put on the party. Right. So then we started Future Spectrum. Nicky started his trip. He called it trip. Yeah. Danny started Shum. Yeah. And that was the birth of club culture as, as we know it today. And, yeah. and what I mean by that, uh, uh, especially for your listener, of course there was nightclubs and electronic music, but we would be at the bar all having a drink. The girls are dancing around their handbag and the DJ's over there and no one's taking very little notice. Well, the birth of club culture as we know it today is when we all turn and look at the DJ and we're all listening to the music and we become one. Mm. And that's what happened in 88. It was the birth of club culture as we know it today. Everyone's still doing the same thing. The only difference is they've got a phone in their hands. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, at yeah. these big festivals I play, everyone's looking at a DJ, everyone's into the music, but everyone's taking photos yes. and not dancing. Mm. Just jumping up and down. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, that was an incredible moment, and and it kind of brings me back to realistically, in some respects, why I'm in Britain at the moment is because of these anniversary moments and this filming and blah 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 on the 30 year anniversary. Of yeah. course, yeah, 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 yeah. Of your, of your, I mean, that's the summer of love. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was a profound moment. This is a psychedelic experience you yeah. have, you know, out of mind experience. But, in, in, but that's a very profound thing. I mean, this is what shaman in the in the Amazonian jungle do. This is, the, you know, for for some people, this is a, re- a religious thing. Yeah, and you kind of, well, you know, accidentally it's, started a religion. It, it was the beginning of of this moment that really birthed. The culture as we know it today. Yeah, you know, I I did an uh, an interview for Sky Arts, and we were talking about this. You, no one ever expected that you'd be talking thirty years later about holiday that started a scene, but when you realise how important it was, and 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 not of course not just myself, there was many people who were in the trenches at that time, and they were like like yourself, Nick, and you yep. were, you're all doing things, but suddenly. You're over there. Yeah. I'm over here. Someone, you're over there. And yeah. then suddenly, this all leads us together. And you go, well, actually, that's what I want to be part of. And that was the umbrella that kind of started started it because then I started to get asked to go and DJ internationally. I started to get asked to do remixes. That that was the beginning of the real moment that opened it up for me globally. Do so you, that must do, have been when you started. Uh, Thinking about the uh, uh, the perfecto thing was that was that perfecto when... came in nineteen ninety one. But, uh, so there was a, this that was a few years later actually. Yeah, wasn't this it? was nineteen eighty eight. Eighty eight yeah. was the birth of club. Yeah, yeah. eighteen ninety nine was the birth of rave. Mm. Yeah, um, and and then you know nineteen ninety I started doing uh, being asked to play around the world, and uh, you know that time it was, you weren't DJing around the world. And then, uh, then it was right. People were asking, "Where can we release our music?" So I thought, "Well, I'll start the label." And 
we signed some Gary Clowan on new sound system, which suddenly was top ten pop. Oh, yeah, got Adrian Sherwood. Yeah, yeah. all Remixer. that stuff. And then I started remixing in 1993. I was that's when the remixing exploded because I did U2. Yeah, I ended up being the opening act on their world tour. Right, so exactly. So it was moving yeah. really fast for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, you did. A lot you, of yeah. respect. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should play even better than the real thing because that's uh, by you too, you know, because that is uh, that's such a uh, a genre defining remix right there. Yeah. I mean, that one a massive attack, unfinished symphony. Yeah, my two favorite. Yeah, and who were you producing with someone? Was somebody engineering for so, you? So, so uh, yes, uh, Rob Davis from the band Mud. Really, lovely and, guy. And lovely guy. Lovely chap. Uh, and great songwriter. Yeah. Uh, so my manager at the time, Brian Reeser, who became my partner in Perfecto. So he did the business. I did the A and R. Uh, he uh, he introduced me to Rob. He, Rob really laid down the foundations uh, in terms of me in the studio. It was my first big moment where I could start to learn. And then, of course, Steve Osborne came into the mix, and Steve's great i mean in his own right very lucky to 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 be with steve yeah how did and, your paths cross then because that was a very that's a very important that, kind that, of that, uh, that, that that was the moment again that was down to brian reza you, you know my manager at the time he was managing steve in terms of steve was an engineer uh rob started to get busy in terms of his songwriting because rob was mainly a songwriter and i wanted to learn more about engineering and he was like well let me put you with this guy who's, who's primarily an engineer. And Steve grew into a great producer. And me and Steve connected really well. So he knew nothing about the electronic world. And he and and he 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 was wanting to learn and, and this as I say, this was moving really fast. So suddenly at the future, I had the future club, I had all these kind of indiacs let's call them indiacs who would come down and you couldn't really play those songs so so the mondays happy mondays stone roses uh flowered up the farm all these guys were coming down and hanging out in my club so then they i would start to remix their songs and steve was with me so we started to remix their songs and then it suddenly exploded and became pop records so that's how I got thrust into producing uh, and remixing because we're having, you know, what record companies are like. As soon as you have a hit, everyone's all over you. Mm. Yeah. So at what point, um, I might be jumping ahead too far now, so, so rein me back in if I am, but at what point did you get the call from, I'm guessing, either Tony Wilson or Mike Pickering to do the Happy Mondays? Well, that was Tony Wilson. Mike Pickering, Mike Pickering was Hacienda. Right, yeah. Yeah, this was the, the this this was uh but factory records. Yeah, yeah, but didn't he sign the Happy Mondays, Mike? No, Tony Wilson signed Happy Mondays. I thought Mike did. Yeah. As far as I as far as I Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, no, Tony was the boss, but Tony because of course we've talked to Mike on Trailblazer. Okay, well and, Mike and, did. And, yeah, I and, wasn't and aware. Tony that. wasn't at the gig. You know, it was he was trusting he was so, trusting yeah, Mike. Was Mike. I think well, I think yeah. Tony Mike, was, yeah. Mike's got listen, Mike Pickering's 
I mean, he signed Calvin Harris. Yeah, and that's Kasabian. Said. And Kasabian. Yeah. And Kasabian. Yeah. And he was in, and he was in M People. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mike's yeah. got amazing ears. So, if, listen, I wasn't aware of that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony, yeah, yeah. Tony likes to take a lot of credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, I'm wondering, because I, I, I was thinking in my head, like, would it have been Mike who made that call? Because no, that was, was a big call. Co- Tony, Tony. No, when Tony. I say made the call, yeah. made the decision for, for, to give a production job to a DJ. Because so, that had never been done before, no. I don't think. I think it also come from Sean. Because Sean, they were all doing, you know, they were coming down to the club, everyone was peeled up and it was going off. Uh, so, you know, so it, 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 I did rope for luck. Right, I yeah. did rope for luck, and it and that sound. I rope for luck is NWA's drums. I rearranged the song. I put NWA's drums underneath it. Yep. There's a sample from the Batman movie that Prince did called "Into the Future." Right at the end. Okay. I mean, we got away with murder. I mean, because we sampled everything, without clearing it. So <laughs> where was so, Dre getting it from? <laughs> so uh, yeah. So so long story short, the remix is a is a hit. And then Tony Wilson reaches out and said, look, we want you, Sean or whoever, whoever was, but the call come from Tony Wilson to Brian, the manager. We want him to produce a record. And that's where Steve came into his own because, you know, it's difficult to manage as a producer several guys in a room all doing drugs. And my strength is from the rhythms of music, right? Because yeah. we're DJs. Yeah. So I would sit with a drummer and go, no, 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 you, you, you copy this loop. So I yep. would, I, how, how we, how the production starts is, it starts with the drums, which it doesn't usually with a band. It starts yeah. with a song and a yeah, piano. Yeah, yeah, right. Guitar, piano and a song. Yeah. Now I understood all that, but the way the Mondays worked and, 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 they were, and respectfully they're not, the greatest musicians, but brilliant in in their approach. And they would allow us to do something different because they came off an album called Bummed, which was a different kind of production. So I would sit with Gary the drummer and go, look, you need to do this and you need, it needs to be a lot tighter. You need to sit in the groove and it needs to be a hip-hop rhythm that can work in a club. And he would do it. And then Gary, Mark, sorry, the, the, the guitarist, Mark, we, we don't want no wa- waffle, we want a riff. Ding, 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 you know, yeah. give me just the riff. Keyboards, ding, ding, ding. It's all about riffs. Yeah. So we took the, did the approach in a different way and then Sean, you just let him loose. So you give him, you give him a backing track which we'd put together. You'd let him be Sean Ryder. You, 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 I mean, lyrically, I'm not going to turn around and say anything. You get on with it. You're twisting my melon man, call the cops. Well, did that, come, well, did that presumably came from your record box? You know, that, that, no. That, no. So whose decision no. was it? Because that was, well, that's sure. one of the best covers ever that well, most people don't know, don't, know, don't know was a cover. Yeah. So no, 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 no. Step On never came from me. Step On uh, came from uh, the record company or the band. Yeah. So they came to me and they said, that was like the the te- that we want you to produce this one track for us. I'm like, all right, I can I can do this. So it's a Donovan cover. I can do. It. We put the big keyboard line on it, the guitar riff, everything. The record company heard it, and then said, we want you to go to LA to produce the album. That's how it all started. So then we all go to LA several weeks at Capitol Recording Studios where the Beatles and Frank Sinatra and all them were and it's us lot 
and they're all peeled up, <laughs> and we're all, and oh. we're all in the studio, and it's a it's a hundred thousand pound budget. And back then, as, as Nick knows, it's a lot of money and a lot of pressure because. The record company, everyone's on me. Yeah. And I've got to hold it together. Yeah. Yeah. The manager to is off. The manager's the same as, uh, as, as somebody we talked about earlier. So, you know, it, it was it was a great moment, but wow. really hard, you know, it, it could have went wrong. But yeah. it was it just, it was the <clears> right time, right moment, and it worked. Trailblazers. absolutely smashed it because like you said you, it, that could have gone so tits up yeah first album I'd ever produced and I, a band that were were, were heavily on with yeah yeah and like cats on catnip and we had and, and we didn't have all the songs and I learnt from this so when the next album come I said listen unless you've got the songs I'm not involved and I declined the set the, the next the follow up to Peel's Frills and Belly Aches which is all in the title, I, 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 I declined because the songs weren't there. Right. And if you ain't got the songs, and Nick knows this, if you ain't got the songs, don't, why would you, you don't want to go near the studio because you're just wasting time, money. You, you've got to have the songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. key. So, so this opens up a new chapter for you because you, you really are a, a record producer now, aren't you? And so what, what, what opportunities so start I, to come I, off the back of Yeah, you had a hit record Monday as success. a producer now. Yeah, so with, with I Steve. start getting offered all bands. Everyone, you know, uh-huh. so everyone wants happy, what Happy Monday's done, you know, band, band, band. So, so who are you turning down then? Well, it's, it's, it's actually not who you turn down, it's, it's who you do. It's not about turning who you turn down. So, so I looked at it and thought, well, I ain't going to do no bands in that genre. So I looked at what was around the corner, what was coming. I looked at the opportunities. Remixing was exploding. Yeah. So I was re- six months out. You're like five, four to six months, really, to produce a band from start, right? And a lot of time, five, six days in the studio there, remixing take me a week and I can DJ at the weekends mm. is there and I'm trying to balance it out and thinking well you know and, I'm, I'm, and now I'm finally making money and mm. I'm finally getting off of big big shows this is where me and Steve really started to split because Steve's strength is in the studio so what's the challenge the challenge was to take a big pop artist who releases every album they release is gold which was what was gold, 100, 200,000 mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. time. So I, the last thing I do is Deacon Blue. Good God. Oh. So I produced, I mean, we, we did well, went platinum, but it was, and, and again, respectfully, I'm not into to, to bad mouth anyone. It just didn't work. Mm. You know, we went in the studio, we did the same approach. They were more musicians. They had their own opinion. It's their album. It's they're the artists. As the producer, you're producing them. You bring something to the table. But I was too far removed. It was the wrong decision by the A&R guy to hire me and me. And because I was like, if I do Dink Blue, you know it's going to be here. Yeah, and yeah. they're like, 
because Mondays have gone 500,000, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's, it's the typical record company thing. You run after that. And it wasn't Deacon Blue. So we did a song, it was top 10, and then we did the album, and halfway through the album they weren't happy with the direction, and I wasn't going to do it. I'm like, well, why do you need me if you want to do a straight pop record? Yeah. Was that still CBS? For yeah. Deacon Blue at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it was. Mm. Um, and, and the record, we had success, but that's when I kind of burned my bridges a bit. And I was like, why do I want to, why do I need this? I don't need, I don't, I don't need this in my life. The, the stress and the pressure of right. five, four or five different members telling you different things. Okay. Yeah. You start here and you end up there. So, so did, post that, did you start to become more focused then on Perfecto as a label? Uh, exactly. And your DJing hand in hand. Exactly. So okay. that's when I kind of, look, I still produce and, and still do and have. So, But I was like, you know what, I've got to park that because it's, it, it, I've got to go on again. I'm going down someone else's path yeah. rather than my path. Okay. I, 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 I've got to stay on my path, which was my label and DJing and, and mixing. And the, the great thing, of course, about running the label was how that uh, interconnected with your, your DJ career, where, of course, you were able to identify big records, play them out, test them, sign them, or, or sign them, and then break them. Exactly. So, so Deacon Blue was something different, wasn't it? That's, that's something where you're not... In in your, you're your not zone. in control. You're not in control. And not, not in zone. your comfort zone. But, but, you're a hired gun. Yeah, well, yeah. I was initially. Yeah. I was initially because the band were like, all right, what do we do? And I'm like, this is how we do it. And the record was yeah. top 10 pop. Yeah. But then when it came to the album... So tell us about um, the the vision there. What with Perfecto as a label? What were you hoping to do? Were you just signing records that you liked? No, or? No, the, yeah, I've always signed records I like. I mean... Uh, we were a vehicle for that space, so uh, yeah. we we and we we weren't a trance label. So we get with our Gary Clow, we had Cole Cox, we had Fabio and Groove Rider. Yeah, I mean Perfecto had gone on to sign David Getter in America, Mark Ronson in America. We went we Sasha Digui, Tiesto, Paul Van. We went through that genre. It was a vehicle to in the early days. There wasn't. There was very few labels releasing electronic music. Yeah, and yeah. RCA funded us. I yes, think maybe like similar. Uh, yes, yeah, similar time to deconstruction, wasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> well, it, it, deconstruction at the time it was it, again our good friend Calder Marshall. Yeah. So so Calder uh, was running RCA. So we signed to RCA. They paid for everything, um, and we uh, let us get on with it. As as did Warner Brothers when I left RCA. Yeah. Um, and the problem with those kind of deals is you don't own nothing. Right. You're you're, you're building up a brand, a label. I own the brand, but I didn't own the content. Right. Uh, and with the label, I wanted to get away from the majors and do it independently, so I could build up a catalogue. I have a big catalogue of so, and that's that's the end game. But Perfecto. Uh, I'm sure, like Positiva, we, mm. we've had, we've it's a roller coaster ride. We've had big hits, sold millions of records, and then, you know, where we are today, we're a small independent label that that does well, not great, uh, to be honest here, but 
It's the industry. Yeah. I'm interested in, in this point, uh, at this point, in the 15 to 18 BPM that added somehow absorbed into your set because you were lolloping around at about 120, 124 when you, you know, when you were doing U2, but you're known for trance at like in the way high 130s. What was the story of that, of those 18 BPM, you know? The the trance came kind of, after I was doing the big remixes, I was with, I was, I was signed as as Movement 98 when I was working with Carol Thompson who was a lover's rock singer out of London, and Ashley Newton, who signed Massive Attack, Spice Girls, he was the head of A&R, Circa Virgin. So I was signed to him, and so I was doing Tricky, uh, as I say, Massive Attack, Nana Cherry. All, I was working in that space, because I, I just, as I say, I like all kinds of music. Mm. Trance didn't come yet. Yeah, Trance yeah. came when I, when I did the Goa mix, and then I really found my niche in terms of the DJ and the sound. So that that was that was a little bit later. At this time, you know, you could play a collective of music as a DJ because that's what came out of the Balearic scene. Yeah, it was. You wasn't yeah. playing. And then as you started, when I became the resident of Ministry of Sound, when that club opened, I defined a sound. So the Ministry of Sound opens. I'm the resident on Friday. I have my sound. Then I do Cream as a resident. And then it's, my sound develops to what becomes melodic trance music. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. The, these were two important residencies, and your cream residency well, is, yeah. is more legendary probably yeah. than any other in the UK. Do you remember what sort of year that would be? That's 1997, Something seven. around that zone, yes. Yeah, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that and the, yeah. the, the super club explosion that happened so in I, the, I was the a, mid-90s? I was the... Uh, so Ministry of Sound opened. I, they asked me if I'd be the resident on the Friday. Justin was... Yeah, Justin Berkman, yes. He was on the Saturday. Yeah. Um, and Justin was, you know, he, he was his club. I yes. Mean, he, put, he made that space happen. But he they did. asked me because <clears throat> I'd been... A, it was based on a New York club called Paradise Garage. Yeah. So I'd been there and, and you know, even bought the mixer. I bought a Yuri mixer. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so so I I like the whole idea of being a DJ and being a resident because I'd experienced it in New York. Yes. So for me, it was the obvious step. Right now, I'm the DJ. Now I'm going to do this, and then Cream came along, and they allowed me to get involved in more than just turning up and playing, that helping on the design of the sound system, the DJ booth because I've been in proper DJ booths and seen how comfortable they are because the DJs will play longer sets. Yeah. So I, I said, can I help design the booth? So four turntables, yeah. uh, effects, yeah. recording setup, but no one can get in the booth. Mm. You can stand side of the booth, but you can't get in there, so you're left alone. Yeah. Uh, areas for your records. Sure. Three-hour, four-hour sets. Uh, lighting, so you're not lit up like a Christmas tree. You're creating a mood because of the stories through the music. And it allowed you to be free and really play. Yeah. Really be a part of uh, 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 and build something. And, and that was probably... You know, I've had a resident, my last residency was three years in Las Vegas. Before that was home in nightclub, yeah. home nightclub in yeah. Leicester Square. I've had four, five residents, six, mm. two in Ibiza, 
Yeah. F- um, three in England and one in Las Vegas. But that, we'll talk about the Vegas one shortly, actually, because we need to talk about the, the, the way that um, the, the scene has grown there. But, yeah, the cream thing, um, yeah, I saw you play up there in that era, and there was something very special. I guess that didn't cross your – that wasn't your thing at the time, Eddie, was it? No, no. What, so, no? No. Uh, uh, no my, my, you no. were elsewhere. I, I was uh, – yeah, I was, I was elsewhere. What year was this? Um, Mid-90s. Yeah. 96. Yeah. Yeah, mid Well, I was I was at Radio One. Yes, with uh, with a little studio, just making all the jingles and the promos. And my and, and my interface with dance music at, at that time was uh, was Goldie, was Liam, was uh, yeah, was Big Beat, was you know was the whole Big Beat thing. Sure, that was where I was. So so we had all of that going on, but then we had people travelling from all over the UK to come and to the to the Cream Residency, and it was really quite something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was. was, it was uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, James, Darren, I mean, we, we, we worked really hard on it. We we would, you know, really, we had a lot of producers who were making music that I would play for four or five months and wouldn't release it. Deliberately, yeah. Bullet in the Gun, BT. These Grace, kind of, it's not Grace, over, not something over. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're uh, and then I was making remixes, Manson, Wide Open Space. That was a big was, one, wasn't that it? That was big. U2 Lemon. Yeah, uh, all these kind of uh, tunes that I would do mixes for, um, and then it would it would I play them well in advance, test them as yeah. you said earlier. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it became it became quite iconic actually. That and club. and and as you said, you know, it, we we also had the 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 trance explosion then in this yeah. period of the nineties where one of your records was massive, BBE. Yeah, mm. seven days in one week and Veracocha, Carte Blanche and Binary Finery. Binary was Finery another one from, yeah. the, from my Positiva era. So so this was a very very exciting time for music, and of course I suppose because the the music was exciting, you had. You yeah, this must have been a great moment for you as a DJ oh, now, yeah. sort of 96, 97, yeah. 98. You're number one in, in DJ yeah, magazines. It, it was a real defining moment. Uh, and, and then it, it, it's like two years every Saturday going up and down the motorway. And then I was like, you know what? I mean, I, I could stay there or I can now go to America. And now I was like, I'm ready to go back to America. Been a different capacity now. So I'm ready I- to go back and be a, res- a be a, be a. And I'd learned when I was on tour with you too. I studied actually. I really watched what went on and learned a lot from Paul McGuinness and how they approach things. And uh, the, the, the conversation I had: if you want to break America, you've got to go and play. Yeah. Right. Well, so and I, be there, not just dip in and out, really. And, and, and not just the two ends. You've yeah. got to be right in the middle. All, all you know, yeah. You've got so to be I right went, in the middle. Exactly. Yeah. So I went and played 120 shows in America in, in, the, in the first year. I went to Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Alaska. I went everywhere and played. And, in, and to tie in with it, I released a compilation called Travelling, Transport. Transport, yeah. Yes. Called Transport. So I had an album and I just went and went and went and yeah. went. And I you... played anywhere. And it, it laid the foundations down. And, and, and Once I... again, once again, I've got to say, it's the back to the work ethic again, right? Yeah. That, that presumably, because you were yeah. at a high level as a DJ at this point, I presume that you could have gone, really? Yeah. Birmingham, Alabama, yeah, you know, and right. the money's not as good as what I might be getting yeah. in, in. But I presume you went. 
Well, this I, needs I'm, to be done. I'm always look, trying to look at the bigger picture. Mm. So, you know, you've got to put the work in. That's exactly right. It's anything. If you don't put the work in, you can't expect anything to happen. Mm. So I knew that, if, that the only way I could become a big DJ in America was to go and put the work yes. in. Yes. So for two years, I grounded it out. Yeah. And I had an album, and then, you know, it's, things started to change. Again, you start to get offered movies to score. You start to get offered games to work on. So then I opened for Madonna on her world tour. It all comes from playing Birmingham from those, yeah, 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 absolutely. Good old Birmingham. That's, that's brilliant. And, and I presume... The Bible Paul, Belt. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at this point in your life, you must have, you, you were, uh, in inverted commas, the number one DJ in the world. You were yeah. like the, the DJ number one, weren't you? Like yeah. At that, yeah. At, at, at that point. Our album, we sold a compilation that we sold half a million compilations in America, which is unheard of now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's called Another World. That was my second album after Transport. And of course, back in the UK, you've got kids like Jamie and uh, so and so from the Claxons listening to you, yeah. and you know, and and that became part of their. Then they, they they turned that into a hit years later, didn't they? They turned yeah. uh, uh, it's not over yet into a hit. So yeah, and you the were bouncer, affecting. of course, and the bouncer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's another. That's one thing that you both have got in common. Yeah, uh, is the, the Claxons? How who thought? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Vegas. Let's talk about that then. So were you, so you were one of were you the first kind of high profile European DJ to have a residence in Vegas? You must have been. Yeah, you? there wasn't in two thousand and eight. So so I'd got I was in I'd now moved two thousand and one. I got offered this movie called. Called, uh, this film called Swordfish, Swordfish. Yeah. and they asked me to score in a movie mm. uh, with, a score. Com- with a composer called Christopher Young um, and I was nervous I'd never done it before I'd wrote music but I'd never scored a 90 million dollar movie and, and you ask you ask yourself questions like can I do it right you know and then I thought if I turn this down Nick I thought if I turn this down I will regret it I gotta go so I relocated for three months to work on this film. That changed because the film was was a, a hit. So I'm now living in America, and I'm doing all these movies and games, and and DJing took a back step. And then and then I kind of came out of it in 2005, 2006, and I was like, you know what? I just want to DJ. I want to. So I started going back on the, the tour. And then I thought, I need a residency. I need to be somewhere every week where it gives me stability, where I can go back to my roots of what I'd learned all these years ago. So I put it out there. I'm looking for a residency, and I'm in L.A. L.A. shuts at 2. New York's five hours there and five hours back. So is Miami. And I'm thinking, where, where can I go? And in Vegas at the time, there was none of the hotels had clubs. 2008, no hotels had, had nightclubs. Palms Casino had one, and uh, there was a nightclub called Ice, which was really off off the strip. So we put a team together, the birth of Planet Perfecto, uh, which was the idea of you go to this this galaxy of uh, and place where there's crazy things going on because you can get away mm. with it in yeah, Vegas. Yeah. So we had we had fire eaters, we had people on trapezes. It really was a planet. Uh, and then from 2008 to 2011, I played there nearly every single Saturday, yeah. and that was the birth of 
of of the residency in Vegas. And then all the other clubs, all the other hotels realise that you can have four or five thousand people paying fifty, sixty dollars, which is like fifty pounds to get in, and bottle service and all this and and now clubs and, and the pool parties are the main source of income for um, casinos. Yes. And Calvin and, oh, and these guys all are these all guys. making a, a, a lot of money and doing incredibly well. I mean, they pack them every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's been a, an amazing story, the, the way that Vegas has, has changed over, yeah. uh, over the years. Game sure. changer, absolutely. You mentioned Calvin Harris. You know, that's uh, in a sense where you should, we should talk to him you know because he's uh he's the biggest dj in the world because of vegas you should you should definitely talk to calvin yeah Cal- calvin is incredibly unique and i mean talented he's, another he's, hard work incredibly <clears throat> hard work yeah. right yeah 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 i mean he, he he came on tour he opened for me on one of my tours and we got to know one other well oh. um yeah, and no, and Mark Gillespie, who's his manager with God's Kitchen. Mark yes. Gillespie was involved. Yeah, that, that'd be a good one to get them both on, actually. Yeah, we talking yeah. Together. Well, yeah, we've talked about this. I really want we, to. We I'm a big fan of Calvin's, and I think, you know, if anyone says he's not a trailblazer, I would argue with them. I think he is. And yeah. uh, I think he'd be perfect. I think, you know, he, he's uh, he perhaps he'd be the youngest person we talked to. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm a, I've always been a big fan of his. I yeah. supported him from day one, you know, when nobody nobody was really taking him seriously. I was. Let's let's hear some more, some more music. As you're pioneering the, the concept of a residency in in Vegas, what was the, was there a record that you? Yeah, were... I think it was my. I did a. Um, I it started off as a bootleg, and then I released it officially on Perfectus Other Side. It was when I took the lyric from uh, and the guitar line from Red Hot Chili Peppers. So I I put it put it together. It was the theme. Uh, of my residency every week no one had it and then we got permission from the band to release it so um, I could send you that or you can get it on Perfecto we released it yeah, that was the that was the tune. Okay, and what what is that tune? That so it's called it's it's by myself and it's called Other Side and it features the sample of Red Hot Chili Peppers. Trailblazers, Paul Oakenfold. Well, so let's, in effect, catch up with the recent Paul Oakenfold because, you know, the, the, we're, still, we're, we're hearing some brilliant stories, some of which are, you know, the stuff of legend. But just let's just have a catch up. What have you been up to, like, just in the last sort of several years? We need to let's catch so, up now to, the, to, to this current point in time. The last several years have been quite interesting because when you get to this moment where, you, you know, I was touring with Madonna, so I did three tours, world tours, as the opening act. Of course, because uh, Maverick was... Because was, I was signed to Maverick. Yeah. Um, so I suddenly left Vegas and was on tour with Madonna. Uh, then I started to go back in the studio and start to write tunes, club tunes primarily. Uh, I, I mentioned briefly when I had that moment where I was having pop hits, I found it very uncomfortable. Uh my second artist album came out. It did well. I had Ryan Tedder, Pharrell Williams, but a, um, um, and um, the big record off of that was Faster Kill Pussycat with yeah. 
Brittany Murphy. So I was kind of dabbling in all these different things and in the orchestra work, because I'd worked in film for so long, I was like, well, I was in the room with all these orchestras and I was like, well, why don't I try and put them into electronic music? Because it just felt right because I was doing it naturally. So then I was doing uh, the Boston Pops, which is the iconic venue like the Royal Albert Hall in Boston, Hollywood Bowl a couple of times. Um, and this is 2008, even a right. little earlier. Right. Um, and again, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I, I did this game for Born Conspiracy, which was Born Identity. So me and CeeLo did a track and we performed with an all-girl orchestra, which was which was really great. Um and and you 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 realise that it's very expensive to do. Sure. Of course, of course. But you were uh, interestingly ahead of the curve again. Uh, again, you Paul, know, because everyone's it, doing the orchestra thing now, aren't they? Yeah, it, it's like you're like like let's have a residence in Vegas. Let's do this thing. You know, there's multiple times in your career, isn't there, where you you sort of first. And you, then, yeah, you tip the domino, and you then know. there's a catch-up process. Yes. So, I mean, are you going to do anything more in that orchestral space? Yeah, I'm. I want to. I want to just let it settle. I don't want to do nothing respectfully. I don't need to touch on Ibiza. I don't want to touch on current times. I'm. 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 I have an idea. A lot of people have asked me to do the Goa Mix live. Right. Ooh. Mm. Which, because the Goa mix is fundamental, the base of the Goa mix is score. Yeah. It's mm. film. Mm. Loads of strings. It's all strings, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and there's spoken dialogue, there's moments from picture, there's there's a lot there. So, and if I do it, I want to do it in a very unique settings. I don't want to, at the typical places, yeah. hence... Yes. They yeah. see where it's going. Yeah, were you going yeah. to say Royal Albert Hall? Yeah. Yeah. Look, Paul Oakenfold with, with a London Philharmonic at Royal Albert Yeah, okay. You know, but somewhere which is just, I have to go in that time and moment, I have to, if you say you're going to do something, you want to, I'd rather you come and see me doing the Goa Mix Live with an amazing backdrop, something like that. So yes. in, this, in, in Goa, on a pontoon, yeah. as the sun's <laughs> setting behind you. <laughs> so these things are difficult, really difficult to pull off. Yes. So it's coming. I'm in no rush to do yeah, it. Yeah. I, I've done the orchestra thing from 2005. Yeah. So I, I've, I've done that. If I do it again... It has to be special, it's, it's, and worth exactly. Doing. It's and worth doing, you know. So, what 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 does that mean? Well, I've got to flush flush it all out and go. Well, for once only, I will do that iconic Goa mix that was mm. number one on Radio One mm. and da, da, da. I will do it five shows in La, in England mm. at these places, and mm. then it's done. So that's kind of the, where I'm at in terms of figuring it out. Yeah. Stonehenge. <laughs> okay, that's another conversation. Um, so you've got to basically do it in, in places that are as epic as your career. So, um, or shall we? Different, or is it the challenge? So, um, well, so should we ask you? Is it time now to? Is it time to ask him about the aliens and what he's going to do about them? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the question is, right, so the aliens have come, they are making a intergalactic superhighway and they're, they're doing a survey of this star, of this solar system and they're going, well, should we put this massive motorway here? We, we, you know, we'd have to get rid of the Earth to put this down and you've got to make a case for the aliens to not destroy the Earth and destroy some other planet and, and your case is one tune. You've got to play them a song which is going to save the world. Well, well, um, maybe look at it the other way around, that we're already destroying the earth, right? And these humans are fucking everything up, right? Totally true. So I would sum it up with Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, well... He made that record 30 years ago, and we're still fucking talking about the same things. So... That to me is, let them destroy it. I, I, I wow. you know, we 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 will destroy ourselves. Well, so we are clearly uh, already destroying it. Yeah, that's yeah. a very 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 so, good point. You know, so it, it's, it's, you know, there. I I don't think there is one song that can save the world. No. But I think there's a one song that asks you the question: We need to save the world, not aliens. And it's Marvin Gaye, what's going on? What the fuck is going on with us? What are we doing? We're fucking everything up and we need to get it together because we will fuck it up for our children. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's I, that close. Yeah, absolutely, now, yeah. Look, at, look what's going on in the oceans. Look what's going on with climate change. I mean, you know, how, how close do we need it to go before someone says, come on, enough's enough? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you can see you can see that there's a seed change going on with people all around the world, and and you know even the the, the, the Chinese the lyric. are being yeah 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 absolutely yeah you're you know you're absolutely song. right. You know, we all know the song really well. The listener, uh, you know, you listen to the lyric, and that's thirty years ago, right? More, more, more. Than, yeah, more. way more. Yeah, yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But well, an ama- amazing piece of music. Yeah. Now let's let's uh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's leave on that. Trailblazers. Oh, what's going on? Okay, so we've heard the tune that uh, that is Paul Oakenfold's tune to save the world, and and with very good reason, I guess. In a nutshell, Paul, what's happening on the horizon for you? I mean, we we've we've touched a little bit on on your uh, possible uh, orchestra thing. My new album's finished, so I really want to get it out. It, it really represents me where I am now and working in film and game. It's mainly down tempo. It's song. It's all about songs, which going back to my father and. And um, A and R Roots is songs. Um, the we made we shot this in VR. The experience we made a documentary. We just this is on the on he's, the, he's, on the he's, he's holding Everest, he's yes. holding his uh, Everest CD Everest, Everest base so camp CD. There, there's a mo- there's a documentary coming out, and you you can see what went on. Uh, we we visited some of the oldest monasteries in en route as you go up to mm. base camp. Mm. We recorded some of these, the instruments that the monks perform and chant with and I took that and put it into electronic music to see if it could fit. So all this plays out. Um, and then big shows like Main Stage, Tomorrowland, Creamfields, the, the usual. I mean, it's a busy year um, this year, but... 
really enjoying it. Great. Yeah. I really like it. I'm going to Russia are. tomorrow I'll be for the World Cup, so I'm like so happy. I'm going to be there. Still on holiday. Yeah. Like yeah. Still on holiday. And looking, I mean, now that you've, you know, you, you must be slightly mind blown now. Just, I mean, I, I am in a way, just looking back at the last, your last 30 years, I mean, the last 25 years. How are you feeling? How do you feel now? I, I, I think it's all, I think for all of us, it goes quick, right? I mean, oh, it's and he's positive as 25 That's years. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it, I'm sure for yourself, I mean, it's wonderful, but it goes so fast. Yeah. I mean, everything Time just, flies when you're having fun, though, right? Yeah. yeah. You, know what I've, you know what I try and do? I try and be in the moment more. I, I When you're at airports, do, do, when you're in airport, just stand there and look around. What happens is you're either on your phone, you're either on a laptop, or you're either in your mind thinking about, I've got to do this, I've got to go there, I've got to, what's going on? You're not actually in the moment. And if you just put it all down and just look around, because when you look around, you're in the moment. Yeah. That's when you sit, and I see this a lot, and I'm trying to be in the moment more. I'm trying to just enjoy this moment. This moment, right? Us three are here, we're having fun, we're talking about shooting the shit, we've all got stories, and enjoy it. You know, and I go to, I was at UNICEF last week. Um, I was on the training pitch with some of these football players and I'm like, oh my God, I come ringing my brother going, I can't believe I'm here. They guess who's over there and there. And you're like, you may never, ever be here again. You may never, ever meet Dave Seaman, who was Arsenal's goalkeeper. <laughs> and my brother's a big Arsenal fan, yeah. you know, and I'm not, like, you know, big Sam Allardyce, yep. Harry, you know, Red, yeah. Harry Redner. Yeah. They're all there, you know, and then you're up at the ground in Manchester United and you're in the dressing rooms at Man United and you're like, this is fucking great. Yeah. But that's being in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Now is a mate. Yeah. Now is a That's a very strong finish. Very yeah. strong yeah. Very finish. Very important. Absolutely fantastic. Paul, what an absolute joy it was to uh, to speak to you. I think this is probably the longest trailblazer. Sorry about that. No. Sorry. No. Sorry. No. Sorry. No. Take that as a compliment. That is a compliment. Take that as a compliment. <laughs> Do not apologise yeah, in any way. It's you. been an absolute joy. Yeah. No, thanks, guys. Thanks, Pre- Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you. Deezer, Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. That was and what a great way to kick off series two. Paul Oakenfold. What an amazing life. Mm. I knew that was going to be a good one. And, uh, you know, world's first superstar DJ and an absolute legend. First uh, DJ ever to produce a record. Mm. Uh, incredible. I knew it was going to be good, but with greatest respect to Paul, I think that the next one might actually be the best one we've ever done. And it's with one of your all-time heroes, it, Nick. It is. And we're going to just reveal who that is shortly. But first, a little message to make sure that you don't miss the next episode do make sure that you subscribe now uh, with your usual podcast provider and please leave us a a lovely five star rating if you enjoyed what you heard or head to Deezer.com to check out the full Trailblazers playlist and more episodes from series one Trailblazers our next episode is uh, one of Nick Hawks' absolute heroes and a man that I am in awe of Mr David Rodigan MBE Deezer Deezer. Originals